You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, good morning to you all again. Great to have you here with us this morning. Kids will be safe with the guys back there. Not to worry. They're doing great. All right. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, good to have you. Uh, we're in the book of Hebrews, like I said earlier. We're in the Hebrews chapter 7, one of, uh, one of the harder texts of Scripture to teach. And I'm going to try and make it as super simple for us uh, and for me as well. Uh, so why don't we stand together if you are able, and we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 10, and then we'll jump into the text of Scripture. It says this, <clears throat> For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the gods of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of God. All right, let's pray as we jump into this. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it it is good for us and for your glory. And as we unpack this text, as we get to know who this man Melchizedek is this morning, may it bring us to a deeper worship of who you are. And I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you can grab a seat. Well, after reading that, you can maybe understand and and, uh, see, and maybe you've actually come across this before. We've actually been in Hebrews now for quite some time, and we've seen this name pop up, and now here we are in chapter 7, and it's going to unpack some of this. Um, I want to start with a quote, actually, by D.A. Carson, a great theologian, pastor. He has a really helpful sermon Um, talking about this Melchizedek, and he says this in his opening lines, and if you want to hear that sermon, um, it's from 2011, and if you just type in D.A. Carson Melchizedek, it's about an hour long, and he does a really deep, deep dive into this man. But he says this in the opening of his sermon, Melchizedek turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the entire Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. And then beyond that, not only helping us put our Bibles together, but seeing clearly who Jesus is. This is going to involve some hard mental work, but I tell you the truth, God has put these things together in the Bible in this way, not only for our instruction, but for our good. 
See, D.A. Carson is referencing 2 Timothy 3, 16 here, that all of Scripture, all is of Scripture, from beginning to end, is profitable for us and is, is exactly in the order for us today that we might learn salvation here about this. And this Melchizedek is, is not outside of that. He's, he's in here for a specific reason, and we want to see that. So if you have your Bible, Bibles open, or if uh, you want to scroll to, just a little bit back a little bit in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, we see something like this. And it says this in verse 9 of chapter 5. And being made perfect, this is talking about Jesus, and Jesus being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the second time we see this name in the book of Hebrews. We see it back in chapter 5, verse 6 as well. But then in verse 11, it says this, About this, we have much to say. We have much to say. And now we're going to say it. Now we're going to talk about this, man. We're going to find out. But this isn't, the, like I said, the first time or hint of Jesus being the high priest, the great high priest. All throughout the Hebrews text, up until this chapter, we actually see hints and markers of Jesus' priesthood all the way through, even starting back in chapter 1. And I want to point some of these things out and just remind you that it's Jesus' supremacy that this book of Hebrews is talking about. Jesus' supremacy. So when we read the book of Hebrews, we need to understand having that in the back of our minds constantly, this book is talking about Jesus' supremacy. So we come to texts like chapter 7, we don't want to be confused or taken away from that, but actually reminded that this is about Jesus' supremacy. So like I said, there's all kinds of different markers. There's actually 17 in total that I found going back to chapter 1 up until the end of chapter 6. And you can see them on the screen. There's this big graph. You can snap a picture if you want. But even just doing some hard work yourself and reading through those six chapters again, you'll see these markers of Jesus' priesthood. And you see it right at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 3. He is the one that comes to purify us. This is the order of a priest, to purify the sin of the people. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, we see Jesus is the eternal priest. He's the one that is lasting, that was before time existed, and that will always outlast time itself. Hebrews 2, 9, crown, he is crowned with glory and honor. Remember, this is what man was to do, the priestly man, but man failed and Jesus came in, was crowned with glory and honor to fulfill the priesthood that man could not. In chapter 2, 11, he is the one again that sanctifies us to purify us from all of our sin. Again, what the order of a priest is called to do. In 2.16, he helps the offspring of Abraham. In 2.17, he is the merciful. We even get this language of merciful high priest in 2.17. In chapter 3, verse 1, again, we have the language of high priest. And he's the high priest of our confession. We are to confess to our priest that he might intercede for us to the Father. And so again, he's this role, this, he's setting up, this author is setting up this priestly duty of Jesus. In 3.2, he is the faithful high priest, even more faithful than Moses. In 4.13, we are accountable to him. As our great high priest, we are to set accounts to him. 
Hebrews 4.14, he's the great high priest, naming him as such. In Hebrews 4.15, he's the sympathetic high priest. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Even in all of our sufferings, in all of our temptations, he has done greater than for us. Remember, we, we lie down in the, when I preach this text, we lie down in the wind so we don't actually know how deep and hard that wind is. Or we submit to the temptation so we don't actually know how hard that temptation is. Jesus never submitted to temptation, so he discovered how hard that is. So he's the sympathetic high priest. In Hebrews 5.5, he is the pointed high priest. And this is again a foreshadow of all the priestly priests in the scripture are all appointed. You're set out as one different in Hebrews 5, 6, he's the eternal high priest. In 5, 9, he's the source of our salvation, which we already read even just to start and kickstart the sermon off. In 5, 10, he's eternal again in the order of Melchizedek. In 6, 19, he's the one that intercedes for us. This is the priestly duty. And again, in Hebrews 6, 20, he's the eternal in order of Melchizedek priest, the one that is before and after and forever will be. He is in that order. He has no beginning and no end. And out of all these 17 markers, we need to see the, the hints that this author is giving this church that Jesus is supreme. This is what this author is getting to. This is the main point of this whole entire book, Jesus' supremacy over the cosmos, over all of creation. He owns all of it. He is the creator of all of it. He is the prophetic, supreme, prophetically, meaning that all prophecies pointing to him. He is angelic in his supremacy, which we saw in chapter 1, and he is also supreme Levitically, here and we see that through those 17 markers and then again here in chapter 7. So this the main point again is Jesus is the supreme high priest. And the author is showing this by way of type. And when I say type, there's an, a type which is the lesser and then the anti-type which is the greater. And this author is not changing his rhythms as he's writing this amazing letter to the Hebrew church, and he's just continuing as we get into chapter 7 with the man Melchizedek. So if I've begun here, the study of Melchizedek can actually be as difficult as you want it to be. As difficult as you want it to be. You can go deeply into this amazing text, but taking you down trails of history, but also some large assumptions that can lead to trouble when reading harder passages of Scripture like this one. See, the goal that I placed on myself for today is actually make it as simple as possible. To make it as simple as possible for all of us. To come away from this text of Scripture praising and thanking Jesus for who He is and for what He has accomplished on our behalf and for His glory. And we're going to discover that's exactly what the priest is called to do for His people. To fulfill this goal, let's follow the outline I've got for us this morning. And we see as we read through this text, four things that I've pulled out over this last week as I've done the study on this text, these 10 verses, is that you see the role of a priest over and over again. So I want to talk about the role of the priest. 
I also want to talk about Abraham's involvement with that said priest, being Melchizedek, for instance. And then we need to talk about who is this Melchizedek? And then out of this question, we go, why bring this man into the light? Like he's mentioned three times in Scripture, Hebrews being the third. Right? In Genesis chapter 14, which I actually talked about a little bit last week, is when we first see Melchizedek. Secondly, we see him in actually Psalm 110, which he talks about his great priestly rule and also his kingship rule over all the land. And then we see him here again in Hebrews 6. So let's cover this role of the priest to get us kick-started. So in the Old Covenant, the role of the priest was a man chosen from the tribe of Levi and was separate from the other tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes in total. The, one of those tribes was the tribe of Levi, and he, that tribe was to be the priest of the people. They were appointed by God to be the priestly nation to be the priestly tribe. And all those in that tribe were to be appointed. And this man was to be without physical defects, to be holy in his conduct. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 6 through 8. Let me read it for us. I don't think it's on the screen, but just let me read it for us. Just listen to what this priest is to be. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy." So this is a big call. This is a big appointment in this tribe of Levi. We also see in Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, referring to the tribe of Levi, saying this, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, within the temple, which, which is behind the great curtain. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift. And any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. It's a big deal. Like you are appointed before the Lord and you are the only one to come into his throne room, which is a hard thing for us to comprehend because we don't have a king, essentially. We don't have a king. But when we come to a king and we see and we recognize the authority that this king brings and the only one that is allowed to come in the presence of the king is the Levite priest. And if anybody else comes, it says clearly that they will be killed. This is a big deal. So the priest was to, be, to bless the people, to be the voice of God. God the king was to pass on the word to the priest, and the priest was to go out and share with the people, to be the voice of God, to take and receive tithes from the people, which we see in our text in multiple areas, but one of the most clear is in verse 5. And the tithe was the priest's inheritance. If you do some studying on this Levite nation, this Levite tribe, the tithe was the priest's inheritance. They didn't receive land as the other tribes did, but they were to receive a tithe from the other tribes. The 11 other tribes were to tithe to them, supplying the priest with a means of life. And you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. 
Now, the priests were provided for through their service to the people. In fact, greater than this, greater than that kind of a tithe, the priest's inheritance was the Lord himself. And we already seen that. I've read that, that in Numbers 18 and, in, and, and, and also in Leviticus. See, the priest's inheritance was the Lord himself. And out of the sweet inheritance of God himself, they were to direct the nation towards the worship of, of God the Father. This was the priest's job. And this far outweighed any gift of land. Any gift of land, any gift of, of money, whatever it might be, this far outweighed all things is to be in the presence of God himself and to receive worship of him or to share worship of him and direct others towards that end. That is an amazing gift. And we need to think about us for a moment in that how are we and essentially, what we talk about, we are now a priestly nation of all those followers of Jesus Christ. We are now called to be that gift to other people around us. To be a nation of people celebrating and pointing worship towards Christ and his kingship. That is our role. And that's just a little bit of a side note and a little bit of application for us as we even discover what this role of a priest is. See, there are many more roles of the priest, but the high priest had a special duty. Now, there is priest, but then there is also a great, high, like a high priest. And this high priest was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seven, seventh month of every single year. And only he was allowed to enter into the most holy place. And we touched on this a little bit last week, but there's a holy of holies in the temple of God. Only the high priest was able to enter. Now, there's different sections all throughout. We're going to actually hit those in future sermons to come. But there's different sections uh, because the Hebrews actually gets there. But there's this high, holy of holies that only the high priest was to go once per year, 10th day, 7th month, and that high priest was to go into there and make a sacrifice not only for himself so that he might be holy going in, but blood sacrifice, but then take another blood sacrifice for all the people and then sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat, which is God's seat, God's throne, sharing with him that this is the sacrifice for the people. Please cleanse them. And this was a representation of cleaning of the people. Blood needed to be shed for our sin, for our rebellion. And we're starting to see, if you know the story of Jesus, we're starting to see this beautiful action of what this foreshadow of Jesus coming to be our ultimate sacrifice. To appease the wrath of God the Father. Just wrath. Just wrath. For if he doesn't bring wrath, he is an unjust God. And it's actually really simple to understand this. We are not perfect. We see that daily on how we act with one another, how we act with others. So we are not perfect, not even close to being. The Bible actually says no one is good but God alone. And so who can stand in the presence of God? That's why if you walked into the presence of God, you would be killed instantly because you're not holy. So this blood sacrifice, this spreading, this, this needed to take place for your sin, for your rebellion, that you might be able to enter into relationship with God the Father. 
So again, he was the only one allowed into the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God, having made a sacrifice for himself and for the people. And it's this particular sacrifice that is compared to the ministry of Jesus as our high priest back in chapter 6, verse 19, which we, like I said, covered last week, where it says that Jesus enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's what it's referring to. So when you see that in chapter 6 of verse 18, the very end of uh, chapter 6, it's a beautiful, this is the gospel in a nutshell where Jesus goes in sharing his, himself as the perfect lamb sacrifice for the people, his people, his chosen ones to set them free from sin and death. So this is just one thing we see in our text. The priest. That's number one. We see this priest over and over again. Now, what is Abraham's involvement with this priest, this priest Melchizedek? We'll take a look again at verses 1 and 2. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, if you turn your Bibles to Genesis, which is the first book of your Bible, and, and you flip over to Genesis 14, we're going to see this amazing story, and you can read it on your own maybe this afternoon if you would like. I'm going to read portions of it. But if you read just the first couple verses of chapter 14, you get this picture that there's this, there's this battle about to take place. There's this war, and we see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. That, right again, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Like, what in the world is this talking about? Well, right in between the Abrahamic covenants back in Genesis 12, which we talked about last week, remember we hit Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 22, right in chapter 14, we see this weird thing take place. And to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history, Abraham and Lot, his nephew, were kind of hanging out together. And they grew and grew and grew, and their, and their flocks of sheep grew and grew and grew to the point where their shepherds started like hating each other because they're hanging out and they're, you're eating the, my grass and I, like you're eating my grass and they started battling. So the Abraham and Lot get together and go, you know what? We probably should separate at this time. And Abraham graciously goes to Lot and goes, you know what? Why don't you choose? You choose the land to go to. And he looks around to the land and sees this lush, beautiful land called Sodom. And he chooses Sodom. And so Lot goes and hangs out in Sodom. And you see this in chapter 14, right at the beginning. Sodom was one of the five kings that these four kings went to battle. And so in this Genesis 14, 1 through 4, one, well, just the beginning of this, this story in Genesis 4, these four kings go to destroy the five kings. And they actually succeed. They take over and they take Lot some women, and all of the possessions because they beat them in war, so they take everything they own and go back. And we see this in this amazing story. And this is really the Bible's version of Taken. You guys ever seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Right? This is the Bible's version of that, right? Liam Neeson plays Abraham, right? So let me read it for you. In Genesis 14, 14 through 16, it says this, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, 
He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Success, right? So you had these four kings beat up the five kings. These four kings take off. Abraham hears it, gathers up some men and goes, beats them up, brings all the possessions back. This is the Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. He coming back from the, Abra- the slaughter. And we see Melchizedek come in in verse 17 and 20. In Genesis chapter 14, it says this, After his return from the defeat of those four kings led by uh, Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There's that tithe again. See, this is the first time we see Melchizedek in the Bible. And we see him alongside Abraham, just as we see it in Hebrews. This is the involvement of Abraham with this priest, Melchizedek. But what sticks out, sticks out the most in the story and the focus in the Hebrews text is the tithe Abraham gives him. Like we ought to ask, like what in the world? Like why, like Abraham did all this and then all of a sudden he meets this Melchizedek as he's coming back with all the people that he just saved and he ties to him. And we see it actually five times in our Hebrews text. This word tithe is mentioned five times in ten verses. So we've got to ask the question, why? Like, what is this involvement with Abraham and Melchizedek? Well, simply, Abraham made himself lesser. Abraham made himself lesser by giving him tithes, a ten percent of all that he gathered from these four kings that he destroyed. Giving the spoil of war, the tithe of war, to the priest. Ultimately, and here's the kicker, ultimately recognizing it is God who got the victory for him. And we see that in Melchizedek's words. And to continue from last week, it is God who is our promise, our oath, and our hope, and Abraham knew it. Abraham knew it. And the meeting between this high priest and Abraham was a sweet meeting of fellowship over the worship of God. It was like two brothers who love God meeting and fellowshipping together over some food, some drink, and a fellowship of who their God is. You know, I, like the ladies have been gone since Friday, kind of morning, afternoon, and I'm hearing stories of the guys getting together, you know, and even this morning, hearing the stories, some of the guys getting together with all the kids and trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do with my children all these 48 hours or whatever it is. And it's like 6.30 in the morning and the kids have already been up for two hours. And what in the world am I going to do now? Right? I think Johnny took the boys to hike gross grind like three times before 9 o'clock. All right? So it was like, it's like what is going on in this sweet fellowship? But that's what it is, right? These men got together and had some sweet fellowship with their sons and daughters. 
and they enjoyed one another's company. And there, there's a fellowship there that we can understand. And you see that here. Abraham meets this high priest that worships the same God as him. And it's a sweet fellowship. And they rejoice together in God's goodness. And Melchizedek says, again, just as a reminder, blessed be God most high. Not blessed be you, Abram. He does bless him. But the ultimate blessing is blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See, the tithe, tithe is like us brothers, like I said, meeting together in a worshipable fashion, giving Jesus the glory and honor, recognizing what, we, what he has blessed us with is just a gift, and we want to give that gift back to him. Even the point of our children. We want to give our children back to the Lord. That's why I pray every Sunday for these kids to fall deeply in love with Jesus because that is ultimately their greatest hope. It's not me. It's not the dad. It's not the mom. It's not their family. The greatest hope is Jesus and Jesus alone. The eternal king, the eternal priest. So we give back to him because he's the one that's given us everything. So we have the priest, the one to, to mediate between us and the Lord. And we have Abraham's involvement with the priest, recognizing his role to point him to Jesus and to help him see that it is the Lord that oversees all. This is what we have thus far. The priest and the involvement with Abraham and Melchizedek pointing to the worship of Jesus Christ. So who is this Melchizedek? Well, look back at our text. I've got some highlights there in Hebrews 7, 1 through 7. This is what we learn about Melchizedek. There's tons in this. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promises, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So in total, we have 14 markers of Melchizedek here. 14 markers in these seven verses. The first one is king of Salem. And if you don't know, this is king actually of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is named multiple times in, in, in different words in, in throughout Scripture. It's Salem is one, Ariel, Jabus, the city of God, the holy city, the city of David, and, and also Zion. Jerusalem itself means possession of peace. And this is the king of Jerusalem. And again, ought to spark our memory as we look back through the cross, through the lenses of Jesus Christ, we need to look back onto this and see King of Salem go, oh my, and my goodness, Melchizedek was the King of Salem? King of Jerusalem? I know another King of Jerusalem that happens to be the priest as well. So Melchizedek, again, is foreshadowing the coming King of Jesus 
Secondly, we see the marker of priest of the Most High God. Third, he's the Abraham that tithed to him, making him lesser and Melchizedek the greater. He is the king of righteousness, which is really important. That's of first importance. King of righteousness. Without righteousness, you don't have peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and also the king of peace. He's without father or mother, without genealogy. He has no beginning or end. He resembles the Son of God, which ought to be a kicker for us, an ultimate foreshadow. He resembles him. He is not. He is the priest forever. He is mere man, not descended from Levi, which is another important thing that we could preach on for probably another hour. He blesses Abraham and he's superior to Abraham. And the 15th marker or bonus marker is found in Genesis 14 is that Melchizedek, remember when I read that story, Melchizedek comes out of Salem bringing bread and wine. We know someone else that also brought bread and wine, do we not? Jesus with his disciples, the first communion, blessing them in their future ministry, but also a foreshadow of remembrance of Jesus on the cross. Such a sweet, sweet text. Fellowshipping with his brothers, rejoicing of all that God has given, celebrating with bread and wine, Rejoicing that it is Jesus that defeats sin and death. So I said earlier, the study of Melchizedek can be as difficult as you want it to be. This is a rich, rich text. Let me give you a couple, four examples. Some claim Genesis 14 is a Christophany, which basically just means Jesus revealing himself uh, to Abraham before the virgin birth. Some say he was a descendant of Shem or Shem himself, Noah's son, and became priest through the line of then being in the line of Judah. This is why he was known as priest of the Most High God and had no descendants, no, no genealogy, because all the other genealogy died in the flood. This would then make sense that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek and in the, then in the final priest because Jesus had no end and also was in the line of Shem. The problem with many of these things is that we just don't have this info documented. And so it's important not to get tangent out and going through all these different things and assumptions rather than just sticking with the text that we have in front of us because God has given us everything that we need for salvation. So we, do, we don't want to get lost in the spin cycle of knowledge so much so that you miss the main point of the text. And that brings us to our final point. So why then would you bring Melchizedek up? Well, simply, I believe Melchizedek is not a Christophany, but a type, someone foreshadowing the antitype, which is Jesus. And the lesser pointing to the greater. And I say this because in the Hebrews letter, we see this over and over and over and over again. And he wouldn't change his writing pattern all of a sudden in chapter 7. Because he actually continues to do the lesser and greater all the way through till, till chapter 13. So he's continuing his writing in the same way and giving us another example of the lesser pointing to the greater. And what a sweet point. 
See, if you read through again, chapters one through six, you're going to see all kinds of things like I found, and you might be able to find some more, but this is some of the things I found. The prophets, right at the beginning of chapter one, the prophets are the lesser. Jesus is the greater. Jesus is the one speaking now. The angels are the lesser. Jesus is the greater. Creation is lesser, and Jesus the creator is greater. Salvation is not through man, but by Jesus the greater. Our suffering is lesser. Jesus' suffering is greater. Moses is lesser. Jesus is the greater. Joshua's rest is lesser. Jesus' rest is the greater. Men as priests are lesser. Jesus is the greater high priest. Abraham is lesser. Jesus is the greater. Our work is lesser. Jesus performs the greater work. Our promises and oaths are lesser, which we discovered last week. Jesus is the greater. Jesus is actually the promises and oath and covenant. And Melchizedek in chapter 7 is the lesser. Jesus is the greater. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is what all these have been pointing towards. And remember, our main point of this epistle is Jesus' supremacy. He is the supreme Levitical priest, the great high priest. This Melchizedek, man, he was great. Even the patriarch Abraham tithed to him the spoils of war. But Jesus is greater. He's pointing this little Hebrew church. Don't forget 30 years ago when Jesus walked this earth and then died on the cross for your sin. He's the bread and wine, friends. He's the one. And this this Hebrew church would have known this name Melchizedek because they heard David talk about him in Psalm 110. They heard a reference back to him in Mark chapter 12. And they they know Genesis 14 probably really, really well being around the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the greater remember I said earlier, the priest's inheritance was the Lord himself. That was the priest's inheritance, the Lord himself. And they were to direct the nation towards the worship of God. This is what the priest is called to do, to, work, to lead the people to worship the Lord Jesus. This is what my call is as a, as a priest, as a pastor, as an overseer of this body, is to lead you to worship Jesus Christ. So let me point out, this is exactly what Jesus was has and continues to do. Jesus is the greatest pastor, priest, king. Jesus is the greatest, greater Melchizedek, the one without lineage, without beginning nor end, our king of righteousness and prince of peace, the great I am. This is who Jesus is. He is forever. See Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and I'll close with this. It's a sweet, sweet text, oftentimes read around Christmas time, but it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the kingship, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's eternal. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is our king, friends. This is the greater Melchizedek. Jesus is the one we ought to worship. We ought to bow our heads to 
to take a knee and to worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The one who's come became bread and wine for us. The broken body, the blood shed, going back into the curtain, the Holy of Holies, to sprinkle his own blood on the mercy seat that we might have eternal life with him. And he rose from the grave. That means, and we're going to get to this in Hebrews, which I'm super excited about, that his life, because he is forever, that his kingship and his priesthood is now forever. There's no need for another priest. It is Jesus. It's Jesus, the eternal one. So let's pray together and worship him. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have come I thank you for this chapter in in Hebrews chapter 7 where it talks about Melchizedek that we might be able to worship you. That it's a pointer to you. That you are the perfect, forever priest gone into the curtain, behind the curtain for our sake. That you are holy and that you are creating us as a holy people because we now proclaim your righteousness upon us that we might now enter in with the Father in prayer, in fellowship, in rejoicing. And so Jesus, I pray that as as we as a people might just rejoice loudly with our voices now and just worship you with song and our gifts of offering, whatever that might be, whether it be financial, whether it be our entire life, Lord, this is what you're asking of us, to do it with joy. To not worry about a land or a possession, but Jesus, that you are enough. And so I pray, Jesus, that we'll be like this, that we'll be that that under-shepherds as you are our true chief shepherd. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you.